0: Fellowship here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. And you may remember the last time we were in John's Gospel, we were here with our Lord in Samaria as he conversed with a woman at a well. Now, for those of you who are visiting us this morning, I apologize, you are coming in at part two of this narrative. But hopefully through me recapping, I'll be able to bring you up to speed. And I do want to recap a bit of that because it has been quite a while since we were in John's Gospel with us going away and all that. So we'll recap a bit, but if you're wanting the full sermon, then you can always find it on our Spotify. But the last time we were here, we covered from verses 1 to verse 26. And that obviously isn't quite the whole narrative. The woman at the well is quite a long narrative, possibly the longest one in the New Testament. It's all it takes it's going to take us all the way to verse 42. So what we've done is we've split this account into three parts, because in it we find our Lord having three interactions. His first interaction is his conversation with the woman which we covered last time. His second would be his conversation with his disciples. And then lastly, his third would be his interaction with the city of Samaria. Now, last time, as I said before, we covered uh, the conversation with the woman. Today, I want to cover the last two interactions our Lord had, that being with his disciples and then with the city, um, which ends in verse 42 with them confessing that this one is indeed the Saviour of the world. And we gave that title some attention last time, and for good reason. That title given to Christ, the Saviour of the world, is unique to John's writing. Surprisingly, it's only used two times in the Bible, once here with the Samaritans, and then once in John's letter, 1 John, and that's 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 14, when he writes, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. And it could be very well that as he was writing that, he was thinking back to this memorable event that he had with his Lord. But like we said last time, of all the names and titles that God has revealed about himself... I think that if there was just one name, one title that just cuts straight to the heart, straight to the work and person of who Jesus Christ is, it would have to be this one. Because who is Jesus? He is the Saviour of the world. I think that name highlights who he is most. Because what has Jesus done for us? He saved us. He saved us from the wrath to come and he saved us from our sin by taking them both on himself at the cross. That's why he came to earth. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came, to save. He is the saviour. Matter of fact, his name, Jesus, literally means Savior. And the original Hebrew form, Yeshua, literally means Yahweh saves. And it's important to note because our God is a saving God, and it is His delight to save sinners because He is the Savior of the world. Now, to recap for the sake of refreshing our minds, last time when we were covering our Saviour's conversation with the woman, we did so by focusing our attention onto three insights. Three insights into our Saviour we looked at so that we had a better understanding of who he was. And we looked at, firstly, the Saviour's mission, then we looked at the Saviour's message, and then lastly, the Saviour's majesty. The Savior's mission helped us understand just how gracious our Saviour is in his mission to save sinners, because we learnt that the region of Samaria was in the central part of Israel. What you have is Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, and then bang smack in the middle there's Samaria. Now there was a direct road connecting Galilee and, and Judea, but it was, and it went right through Samaria, And though it was the quickest way to get back and forth from those two regions, the Jews typically wouldn't use this road because there existed this bitter hatred and this rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans. And that's because the Samaritans had lost their racial purity. They were only half Jewish. Their ancestors had intermarried with pagans and not only was their blood half Jewish, but their religion was as well they had they only accepted the first 5 books of Moses the torah and the rest of scripture they threw out so the jews saw them as subhuman they they weren't pure they clearly weren't god's chosen people so they abhorred them and they abhorred them even more than they did the gentiles and you know such was the racism of the jews towards the samaritans that they even coined that term as an insult. You can look, just flick over a couple pages to John chapter 8. When they're fed up with what Jesus is telling them in verse 47 and 48, they even throw the, the term at him. They say, in uh, verse 47, say, Jesus says, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. And verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Such was their disdain for the Samaritans. They were viewed as subhuman. So although you had this direct road through Samaria, the Jews wouldn't use it. They would avoid Samaritans as much as they could. So they created for themselves two other ways to get to Judea or get to Galilee. You had the coastal route, which would keep you on the outskirts of Samaria, and you basically just walk up the coast. Or what you had for the Orthodox Jews is what they would do is jump on a boat, cross the Jordan River, walk up the other side of the Jordan River, past Samaria, hop on boat again, hop off into Judea or Galilee, thus avoiding the whole region entirely. That's what they did. And we noted how interesting is it that in in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now that statement can't be a geographical statement because Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. He had two other roads he could have gone to avoid Samaria completely, but Jesus had to go through Samaria because he was on mission. He had a divine appointment. He had scheduled in his diary before the foundation of the world that he had a meeting with a woman at Jacob's well. Thus, we saw the compassion of our Savior's mission, not just for the immoral woman, but also for the despised, rejected race. Jesus would deliberately go through their region, defying all cultural norms. And he went with his disciples. To minister to them. That's because our Lord is on a gracious mission to save not just the Jews, but men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Revelation 7, verses 9 says, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues standing before the throne. And before the lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. We then looked at our Savior's message. That he extended to this adulterous, immoral, Samaritan woman the gift of God, which is eternal life. And we saw that he used the illustration of water. Now what we noted here is the beauty of our Savior's message. And we did that by identifying the stark contrast between this chapter, chapter 4, and the previous chapter, chapter 3. Because in contrasting those two chapters, we see the beauty of our Savior's message that it is to whoever. And it's no coincidence that John has put these two conversations side by side. That's because the last person Jesus was talking to, do you remember chapter 3? Nicodemus is who he had a conversation with. And between the woman and Nicodemus, there couldn't be any more opposites. Nicodemus was a Jew, a highly regarded religious Jew. He was well-loved. He had a good reputation. He was a teacher. He lived a moral life. And he was at the top of the religious social ladder and he was seeking Jesus out. Then we come to this chapter and we have a woman who is a Samaritan. She's irreligious. She's immoral. She's had five husbands. She's not named. She's got a terrible reputation. She's an outcast and she's not seeking. Yet Jesus speaks to both of them and he offers both of them the gift of God, which is eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, restoration with God, is available to whoever will come. Such is our Savior's message because He is the Savior of the world. Then, lastly, we looked at our Savior's majesty, which was verse 26 when He reveals to her that He is the Messiah, He is the great. I am, I am, He is what He says to her, revealing that her saviour, our saviour, the world saviour, is none other than the creator himself, he is God, veiled in human flesh and he has come to rescue us so that we can be restored and worship him in spirit and in truth. So that's what we covered last time, that was part one. And we pick it up now from verse 27. In our part two, and we'll make our way through to the end of the narrative, covering his conversation with his disciples and his interaction with the town. And as we go through this today, our focus will be on three more insights. Three more insights that we'll see of our Savior, and that is number one, our Savior's priority, from verse 31 to 34. Then we will see our Savior's perspective, and that will be from verse 35 to 38. And then our Savior's power from verse 39 to 42. These three insights our Savior's priority, our Savior's perspective, and our Savior's power. And my prayer is that as we study this today, that our faith and our service towards our Savior will be even more enriched. Well, let's begin by reading the text, shall we? Verse 27 to verse 42. It reads, At this point his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, Why do do you speak with her, or why do you seek? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Saviour of the world. What an incredible body of text, and there's so much in that that we could talk about, but we'll try to keep on track and keep focused with our three insights, and we'll touch on application as we go through. So verse 27, just after Jesus has had his divine encounter with the woman, and right as he's revealed to her who he is, it's at this point that his disciples come back from getting food. They were in Samaria and they were gone to get food. We know that because verse 8 tells us that they went to go get food. Now they've returned from their trip and they're amazed that he's speaking to a woman. Everyone was amazed that he was speaking with her. Even she was amazed. The only person who wasn't amazed was him. Because it wasn't custom for a Jew to speak to a woman in public. An Orthodox Jew wouldn't even speak to his own wife in public, let alone a stranger. It was considered back in those times a waste of time for whatever reason. But Jesus doesn't care for that. Because that's not biblical. He created male and female equal. But his disciples are amazed. They've never seen a rabbi do this before. They've never seen one talk to a woman in public. And they would have been even more amazed because not only is she a woman, but she's a Samaritan woman. But in all the complexity and all the amazement, none of them interrupt what's happening. It says that no one asked him why he was speaking with her. And that's because in their short time that they've had with Christ so far, they've come to respect him. And they trust him that he has good reasons for doing what he is doing. And as they're standing there, it's at this point that the woman who has just recognized her true need and she's encountered divine grace, she's had her sin exposed, she's had the offer of the gospel, she's received that living water... And now that water is springing up in her as a well that others can draw from, she leaves because she's off. She has to go tell everyone what's happened. And notice the change in this woman's life. She came to the well at midday to avoid everyone because of the scorn she received. Women in those times would come in the evening because it was cooler. At that, at that point in the day. But she used to come at midday. But now she's determined not to avoid the people, but to head straight to them and announce to them something that she's just experienced. And I love verse 28. It says that the woman left her water pot and went to the city. She left her water pot. That's the very reason why she came to the well. But now with the profound impact that Christ has had on her and the change that has taken place in her heart and the excitement and joy of meeting her Savior, she's gone. Yeah. She's gone right to the people who she was previously trying to avoid. So it says that she went to the city and said to the men, come, see a man. And now you can just picture how this would go down, right? This immoral woman who has had a record of seeing men comes into the city and announces that she's met another man. Come see a man. Now really, who's going to listen to her about that? You've had lots of men. Why should we go meet another one? Why should we listen to you? But she said, no, this one's different. I'd never met him before. But he's told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? She knew that he was the Christ, but she's clever. She's being clever. She baits them in, creating interest. This couldn't be the promised prophet, do you think? Could it be him? The Messiah? You have to come. You have to meet him. Tell me what you think. And verse 30 says that they went out of the city and they were coming to him. So she had got together quite a crowd. And I imagine a stir would have been going on and maybe pockets of crowd were coming out to meet Jesus. Now, meanwhile, verse 31 says at the exact same time that this woman is evangelizing to the city, he and his disciples converse. And this leads us to the first insight of our Saviour. And that's our Savior's priority. Our Savior's priority. The conversation starts, verse 31. His disciples are urging him to eat something. They had just gone to the city. The last time they had seen Jesus, he was weary. He was hungry. He had to sit down. They've now got the food and they're telling him to eat. But to their surprise, he's not eating. And he says to them, verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. What? Where did you get the food? They're confused. No one bought him anything to eat, did he? I mean, I checked the radius and I'm positive Uber Eats don't come out this far. So how? Where? Who? Who bought him? the food? And it's at this point that Jesus alludes to something very, very significant and it's here that we see our Savior's priority, verse 34. Jesus said to them, "My food is to do." the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What Jesus is saying here is that more than food, he gets his strength, he gets his joy, he gets his satisfaction from declaring the gospel to lost sinners. More than food, what sustains him, his energy levels, and keeps him going is doing his father's will. His priority isn't to satisfy his physical hunger, but He is satisfied when he does the will of his Father, the will of God. He would rather go without food in order to accomplish the work set before him because that's what truly satisfies him. And if we remember John's purposeful writing, we've been reminding ourselves of this. John 20:31 that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is just another piece of evidence that we've been identifying that Jesus is the Christ. Because his number one priority is to declare the gospel to lost sinners. His number one priority is to save sinners. That's why he came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's his mission. That's what truly satisfies him more than food. And it's here that it appears that he's even lost his appetite because he's so consumed when doing the will of the Father. That's evidence that he is the Christ. He is so tied up in doing his Father's will. For Christ, it's food is in its proper order of things. And though it's essential to live, it's not to be the first priority. The first priority for him was to do his Father's will. Now, there's application in that for us. And it's pretty simple. The question we all need to ask ourselves is, what's our number one priority? Are we consumed with doing God's will? With declaring the gospel and seeing sinners come to salvation? As Christ's followers, is that what satisfies us most? Is that what brings us the most joy in life? To share in our Saviour's joy and satisfaction by declaring the gospel? Because that's God's will. Matthew 6 verses 31 to 33 says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all those things. But your heavenly Father knows you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. We're to follow Christ and his priority and have our priorities right. Matthew 4 4 says that it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what does our priority list look like? What's at the top? Can we follow Christ's example? It could be food. It really could be anything. But if anything other than doing God's will is at the top, then, beloved, we have to reassess because we've got it wrong. Now, I think it's appropriate just to insert here that God isn't against food, okay? Of course he's not. And I don't want an unbalanced view of things that you're sitting down eating lunch today feeling guilty. (laughs) Because that wouldn't be right either. I mean, we see just a couple chapters later, John 6, he multiplies the bread and the fish to feed the masses. So he's not against us. Eating, but if you read that narrative, and we'll get there in in a couple weeks, even in that miracle, he's trying to get the eyes off food and onto Him who's the bread of life. That's where satisfaction comes. And the point is that just like Christ, our highest priority and duty should be that of sharing this living water with others, being a well that other people can draw from and accomplishing God's will, not just attending to our physical needs. Our highest satisfaction is not to be found in satisfying our body, but rather to be found in doing God's will because that's food. That's satisfying. Jesus then proceeds to tell them, verse 35, do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. And it's this verse that now leads us into our second insight, that being our Savior's perspective. Now Jesus isn't talking about farming and agriculture here. Just like water and and food, it's an illustration that conveys a spiritual truth. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? It's most likely that the farmers were four months away from harvesting their crops at that time of year. That part is physical. But Jesus wants to teach his disciples about another harvest, a spiritual harvest that is already ripe. It's not four months away. It's already ripe for harvesting. Because he says, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields that they are white for harvest. He's trying to impress on his disciples, while they're concerned about physical needs and foods, He's getting them to lift up their eyes. Can't you see the crowds, the Samaritans, coming out of the city? Look upon them. And he's impressing on them the urgency of reaching lost souls. He's telling them, look up. Look at them. There's a harvest coming our way. And they're ready to be harvested and brought into God's kingdom. There's no need to wait. Their hearts have already been sown into by the woman's testimony. And now they're ready to hear. They're coming towards us. They're already ripe. And now Jesus knows that they're ripe. Because he's omniscient. Right? The disciples didn't know the state of the heart. Only Christ knows that. It's like when we saw back in chapter 2. At the end of that. When he wasn't entrusting himself to the masses. Because he could see their hearts. He could see there's something wasn't genuine in there even though they professed to be believers he wasn't entrusting themselves it's the same but here he can see that the hearts are genuine they're ready to receive the gospel and be saved that's what he's communicating to his disciples that's why he says that the white for harvest that's what he's alluding to so Don't worry about food. Proclaiming the gospel sustains me. And look, here's a field of lost souls who are ready to have the gospel proclaimed to them. That's what he's saying to his disciples. The harvest is now. It's here. It's already among us. And it's a gospel harvest. And you need to see. You need to lift up your eyes and see that there are many coming who need to hear the good news. And it could be that as the villagers were walking walking towards them, that they were dressed in white, as often Middle Eastern uh, villagers would dress in. But that would have just enhanced the illustration. It's not entirely important. What's important is that we get the point too. And the point is that just as like the Samaritans who were ripe for harvest... All they needed was someone to labour and harvest them by telling them the good news. So it is also true that God has his harvest fields all around the world ready to be harvested. Now the harvest field represents people. The fields that are ripe are the people who have good soil, who God has been working at and he's bringing them to salvation. All they need now is a faithful labourer to go and to harvest them, to share with them the gospel and by doing so, bring them. Hey buddy, you're alright. Noriah's preached with me behind here. All they need is a labourer. And by doing that, by somebody laboring, they're brought to repentance and faith. Now it's not up to us to know who's ripe and who's not. We don't have that insight into people's hearts. We don't know. Nor is it up to us to bring someone to faith. That's that's all God's business. But it is up to us to be not so concerned with our physical needs... But be concerned with working in God's harvest field. To be sowing and reaping and harvesting souls by sharing with them the gospel. That's what God requires of us. Just as Jesus tells his disciples here to look up and see that the time for proclaiming the gospel is now, because there's a spiritual harvest right in front of them, so we need to see that the time for proclaiming the gospel is now as well, because God has his people, wherever you are, who are ripe for harvest. So we're to lift up our eyes, as our Lord says. Can't you see the need for the gospel that there are many who need to hear this message. Many that need to be sewn into. And we need to have that same perspective that our Saviour has and see that there are gospel opportunities right in front of us. All we have to do is open our eyes to them. Even a simple task is just going to get food like the disciples were doing. They missed gospel opportunities. How is it that the disciples who know who Jesus is go into the same city as the woman did just moments before they were in there, but it was the woman who evangelised to the city, not the disciples? It's because they were more focused on getting food than they were working in God's harvest field. Even in a simple task like that, ordinary, everyday things, we're to have our Saviour's perspective and see that every opportunity is a divine opportunity to share the gospel. If only the disciples saw that before, it would have been the crowds following them out to meet Christ, not following the woman. Now, and I just want to say this. I'm convinced that we tend to overthink evangelism. And I say that because I know I've been there. And I'm no super sanctified Christian. I understand the fear of man. But I do think we overthink it in two ways in opportunity, and then also in methodology. An opportunity? It's almost like we tend to live as Christians as if the fields aren't ripe. And it's okay if we don't sow any seeds. And it's almost like we have to wait four months for the perfect opportunity to share the gospel. But the truth is that if, if God is sovereign, which he is then those who we encounter on a daily basis, we're not encountering by accident, right? And when we think about it, if God is allowing me to encounter this person and converse with them, what would he want me to talk to them about? it becomes obvious that he would want us to share with them the gospel. So there's endless opportunities to share the gospel. We just have to be intentional in looking for them. And secondly, I think we tend to overthink evangelism and methodology, just the way of doing it. Like, what is it that I should say? You know, somebody said once that, Someone can share the gospel better than me, but nobody can share a better gospel. And I think that's very true. And while it's definitely beneficial to upskill ourselves in evangelism, we we can do the very basics. And the very basics is, is just simply doing what this woman did in our narrative. What did she do? She just went into a city and tell her... Told them what God had done in her life. Her experience with her Savior. That's all she's done. She's just shared about her experience with God, her testimony. And it's biblical to share that. You know, Mark 5, verses 19, you don't have to turn there. It's just a quick reference in Mark 5 uh, 19, sorry. Jesus told the man who he had just cast demons out of. He says to him, "Go home, go report to the people what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has how he has had mercy on you." Now, all of us who are redeemed can do that. We can talk about the mercy that God has had on us. That he's no longer holding us under judgment for our sin, but that he's taken my punishment and he's set me free. That's all evangelism is, really. The, at least the basics of it. And I also just want to say, under this point of perspective, that Did you know that throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he taught us a lot about prayer? You probably knew that. Through his parables, he taught us about prayer. Through example, he taught us about prayer. He gave us the Lord's Prayer, which really should be called the Disciples' Prayer, but anyways. Did you know that throughout his teaching ministry on prayer, There is only one request that he specifically asked us to pray for. Do you know what it is? Not sure. We're about to find out. It's Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. Matthew 9 verses 35 to 38. It reads this. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That's the Lord's only prayer request. That he specifically asked us to pray. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. How many of us pray for that? Me. How many of us are willing to be an answer to that prayer? Absolutely. God bless you. You know, someone once said that it's interesting to note that Jesus didn't command his disciples to pray for the lost, although that's certainly appropriate, and he wouldn't discourage that prayer at all. However, our primary prayer was for the Lord of the harvest to send our worker into his harvest. And that's fascinating because how often are we concerned for people's souls only in prayer? It's possible to just pray for someone to be saved and then leave it at that. But when we pray for the Lord to send a worker to go and tell them the gospel, well then we're the first one that has to be prepared to be that worker to go tell them their need to be saved, right? And to bring this all back to Christ's perspective, I believe that as Christ's followers, we're to have the same perspective as he had, to see people as he sees them with compassion as sheep without a shepherd, identifying and praying for the desperate need for labourers to go (coughs) and to labour in the harvest. Now, of course, we're not omniscient. We don't know the state of men's hearts, but the fact still remains that we're called to labour, and to labour is to sow the gospel. There's a hymn that says... Let me look on the crowd as my Saviour did, till my, eyes, till, till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me view with pity the wandering sheep and love them for the love of him. Now if we go back to our text... Verse 36, now this is encouraging to read. Read this, verse 36. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. That When we labour in God's harvest field, sowing the gospel, it says that we're gathering fruit for eternal life. And we're receiving wages. And that's just another way of referencing rewards. There's rewards for those who will diligently work in the Lord's field. And that's what it's all about, storing up treasures on heaven, not on earth. Are we more concerned with ourselves and our physical needs or are we concerned with the Lord and his work? But be encouraged that there are rewards, there's crowns, there's joy and rejoicing for faithfully working in God's field. And it's it's joy... That's not tainted. It's pure joy. Like the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And I'm sure all of us want to hear that on that day. But let's continue. Verse 37 and verse 38. Jesus explains to his disciples what's about to happen with the Samaritans. He says, For in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now the disciples are about to reap a spiritual harvest that they had no part laboring in. But such was Jesus' method to teach them. It was Jesus who labored. He sowed and he watered and he grew the seed in the woman's heart. Now the woman had gone, and then she sowed the seed into the hearts of her Countrymen, and now they're coming out, and the disciples are going to reap the harvest. They're going to see lives transformed. They're going to see salvation, which is verse 39, and this leads us into our last insight our Savior's power. We've looked at our Savior's priority, that it is number one priority is to do the will of God. We've just looked at our Savior's perspective, that He sees the crowds. He sees the individuals and in the crowds and he sees the need for the gospel and now lastly our Savior's power. Verse 39 it reads, from that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus they were asking him to stay with him and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the saviour of the world. <coughs> so the Samaritans have now reached Jesus. And we don't have any dialogue with what they discussed, but what we do know is that many believed. Their hearts were right. And then they urged him to stay with them, which he did. And it says that many more believed in him. And I love that. I love that verse 39 says that many believed. And then verse 41, many more believed. Because from the most unlikely city in Israel, and the Lord is there and he's saving many and their hearts are right. You would think that it would be in Jerusalem that this would happen. Where they have the entirety of the Old Testament and their devout religious people. But as we've discussed before, through all the illegalism, they had blinded themselves. It's here in a Samaritan city that the Lord reaps a great harvest. And the point I want to bring out about our Savior's power is that we must never doubt our Savior's power to save. He has the power to save, he has the power to redeem, he has the power to change lives, even in the most unlikely circumstances. It doesn't matter who it is that comes to him, whether from, what their religious background is, what their social status is, what their past is. Our Lord has the power to save them. All they have to do is come to him. And he can transform their life as he's done here with this despised little region of Samaria and the immoral woman at the well. His net is never too shallow, nor is it too narrow to reach down into the depths of human depravity and pull to redemption those who we deem the most unlikely and we must never doubt our Saviour's power to save. You know, I know of a church in the States who made their theme for this year, Unlikely Converts. And I like that thing. Unlikely Converts. And they they started the year off with a study of Paul's life because, talk about unlikely, the guy persecuting the church. And then we look at this woman, who we've looked at the past... Um, couple Sundays and when we compare their lives and the transformation that they have it is so true that our Saviour has the power to save all of those who come to him for salvation Hebrews 7.5 says that he is able to save to the utter- uttermost those who come to God through him in Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. Now to close with application it's the application for our Saviour's power is again a simple one. Do we believe that? Yes. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus has the power to save? Even save the unlikely? And I'm an unlikely convert. for I was a sinner, I still am. I was a rebel against God. We're all unlikely converts when we think about it. It's the cross that levels the playing field of humanity. It says in Romans 3 that we charge that both Jew and Gentile are all under sin. So we're all unlikely converts because we were all rebellious. But by his grace and his power, he saved us. So are we clinging to him for salvation? Are we trusting him or have we doubt in his power to save? trust your saviour come to him if you haven't already he is the only saviour not just of the Jews but Judea Samaria and then to the ends of the earth he is the saviour of the world let's pray Well, Lord, we thank you for this incredible account in your word. That, Lord, from the most unlikely region in Israel, we see that you reaped a massive spiritual harvest. And, Lord, as you've asked us to pray, we pray that you would please send out workers into your harvest. We know that your word is true and if you say that there are only a few workers then Lord we believe that and we pray that we would be among that few. I pray Lord that you would send workers. Send us Lord if there's any here Father that are hesitant, would you please encourage them, would you please encourage us in our hearts Lord to have the right perspective and the right priority that we may emulate you and truly be your followers. We thank you Lord for our time together and we pray that as we finish up here and enter into our weeks Lord that. Your word wouldn't just be something that is here, but Lord, it would follow us and we would follow it into our week. May you guide our lives every single day, every hour, every moment of every day, we pray. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.